Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, guys. Sam Willis here. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new competition we're running to win a signed copy of one of our series books. We've got books on World War II, the Romans, the Tudors and the Vikings. We know there are many, many thousands of you out there listening to our podcasts, and we want you to tell us on social media what you're doing and where you are whilst listening. We want to see all the beautiful places or ordinary jobs or wacky things you're doing whilst listening. Either send a photo or just describe where you are and what you're doing and we'll draw a random winner. But remember, to qualify for the competition, you have to tag us in your post and add our webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, But if you do let your followers know that you're listening to us and enjoying it, we'll enter you into our competition for a signed book. Thanks, everyone, and good luck. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like gnomes, teeth, and conquers. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of shrinking, shrinking, is in fact all about the Tudor Navy, or that the history of sharing is all about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto. Well, if you want to find out about sharing, you should listen to our last podcast on that very topic. The man not sitting opposite me anymore. It's very sad. We usually record opposite each other, but we're not because it's lockdown. So the man not opposite me, but he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. He's also a very, very nice man. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam, and I miss you too, and and thank you for such lovely words, Uh, because the man not sitting opposite me, because he's in his shed on the other side of town, not famous historical adventuring, but nonetheless, the very same Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Are you well today? Yes, hello everyone. I'm very well. It's a bit rainy, um, but it's all good. It's all good. I've had a lovely morning um, thinking about what we're doing today because this is another episode in our special homeschooling series. And in each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and then we prove that it does. And not only that, we prove that it's really, really important and worth learning about, not just in one simple example, but actually across history. And today we're doing playing chicken. You know, that 
game you play when you push someone and you push someone and you push someone just to see how they're going to react. We're doing that and we're doing it in relation to something called the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. But before we go into how the Russians and the Americans banged heads against each other over Cuba, um, we're going to talk about how we might think about this in other ways across history. Ah, we are indeed. It's all about brinkmanship. It's pushing people to the very brink. And I can think of examples across history that prove exactly this point. I could think of Henry VIII wanting to divorce Catherine of Aragon and pushing the Pope and Rome right to the brink. And this is, of course, all about King Henry VIII's great matter and poor Cardinal Wolsey, who went up to bat for him, failed to do the king's bidding and then fell foul of his majesty for being unable to do that. Oh, that was such an exciting moment in history, actually, to look back on that and to see the clashes, the huge, huge clash between Henry VIII and England and the Catholic, the Catholic Church. We've talked, actually, about other examples of people really playing chicken with each other on our podcast. We did one called The History of Epic Fails, which was about the League of Nations, and that is a classic example of people playing chicken as well, particularly with Mussolini and his invasion of Abyssinia, in 1934, he knew that the League of Nations was there to stop this kind of aggression from one state against another. And yet he did it anyway. And he pushed and he pushed just to see if the League of Nations would stop him. And they didn't. And not long before that, in 1932, the Japanese had done exactly the same thing with their invasion of Manchuria in China. They needed to get the resources in China because the Japanese had suffered from a terrible depression. And so they invaded. They started to take things from themselves. They also knew that the League was set up to prevent exactly this type of international aggression. And yet they did it anyway. They just pushed and they pushed. And the League of Nations did nothing. And who was watching, James? Who was taking note of all of this? You tell me, Sam Willis. It was Hitler. It was uh -huh. absolutely Hitler. It was. And so we then have Hitler doing exactly the same thing in the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia in 1938 and 1939. So those are two very clear examples of how this type of playing chicken fundamentally changed the world in the aftermath of the First World War and the run up to the Second World War. And it continued as well. The Korean War, that's another one when you've got a war um, between North Korea and South Korea. And that war was contested with the backing of the East and the West. So the North Koreans being backed by the communists, uh, communist Russia and South Korea being backed principally by the UN and the United States. And that primarily brings us on to what we're going to talk about today. So we've got an example of playing chicken there. And we're going to look at how the same thing happened in Cuba in the 1960s. Now, if you wanted a bit of background to this, it's worth listening to our homeschooling podcast on the history of sharing, where we've just talked about Karl Marx and his ideas about communism and the Communist Manifesto. And so what you need to know now is that the world has fundamentally changed from the Second World War. And you've got two very large powers known as superpowers because... After the Second World War, Russia and America were the two largest surviving powers, largest surviving economies. And by the 1950s, both America and the Soviet Union, they had nuclear weapons. This was a major, major problem. And so you've got a 
conflict between two ideologies. You've got United States of America, which is a capitalist country. They believe in having a variety of political parties. They believe that in the private ownership of business, they believe that you should be able to own your own private property as well. Soviet Union by this stage is a communist country. They believe something radically different. They believe in having one political party. They believe in businesses being owned and run by the government. They believe in property being owned and run by the government. And the communists in the USSR have been massively expanding since the Second World War. We're not just talking about about Russia as we might conceive it now, but there are all sorts of Russian-controlled communist countries in Eastern Europe. Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. There is a huge, huge area of land which has come under communist control. And people in America and also in England are absolutely terrified of the communists continuing to expand. Now, within all of this, there is this development of nuclear weapons. If you think back to what happened at the end of the Second World War, there was the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the Americans on the Japanese. And ever since then, there was a race to create nuclear weapons. Um, these really changed in the 1950s with the invention of the hydrogen bomb, which is different to the atomic bomb, which was used in the Second World War. The hydrogen bomb is infinitely more powerful. And just a year after the Americans developed the hydrogen bomb, the Russians developed the hydrogen bomb as well in 1953. Two years after that, the Russians are developing their own submarine-launched nuclear missiles. And submarines are terrifying with nuclear weapons on because they can hide underwater and they can go all over the world and they're very, very difficult to find indeed. And that means you can launch a nuclear missile from very close to someone's country. You don't just have to have that nuclear weapon on your own country. Um, at the same time, 57 and 58, both Russia and America are developing missiles that can uh, hit targets thousands and thousands of miles away. So that's the background to what's happening. And I'm going to take you up now to October in 1962, when an American spy plane is flying over the island of Cuba in the Caribbean. And the Caribbean Sea is not very far away at all from the American mainland. And that spy plane sees some very obvious things. They see that there are some nuclear missile sites and that they're being built by the Russians. So the Americans know that an island not very far from their, their coastline has Russian nuclear bases on it and Russian nuclear capability very, very close indeed. I'm going to talk now about uh, an announcement on television by President Kennedy, who was the American president at the time. This is the 22nd of October, 1962. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 
Acting, therefore, in the defence of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive build-up, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military build-up. I have directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities. Third, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. There are some very, very strong words there, and it's proof of Kennedy taking the West to the brink of war against Russia. And it's interesting just to think about what he's done. He has decided to order a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba. Essentially, he's decided to blockade the island of Cuba. This means putting ships out to sea to stop Russian supply ships getting anything into the island of Cuba. But there were other things that he could have done. And these are really important to understand what actually happened next. He could, of course, have done nothing at all. The Americans still have a a, a much larger, more powerful nuclear arsenal than the Soviet Union. But he really doesn't want to be seen to be weak. He could launch an attack on Cuba. But that, again, would have been an act of violence consciously against the Russians. So the Russians are actually just putting missiles on a country. They are not actually yet taking any hostile action. So that would have been difficult. Similarly, he could have invaded Cuba, but that also would have guaranteed perhaps an equal Um, Russian response, some kind of land invasion, perhaps not necessarily in Cuba, perhaps elsewhere in Europe, perhaps even Berlin. He could have applied some diplomatic pressure on to the Russians, but this was already a period of intense diplomacy. And actually what the Russians are doing here are moving military equipment and just to use diplomacy might well have been a sign of weakness. And so he settled on a blockade. It was enough to prove that America was serious, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily solve the fact that there are missiles already on Cuba and they're just preventing more missiles from coming. Now, James is now going to explain why Cuba. Why did this all happen in a little Caribbean island, James? So, what I'm going to tell you about is the background to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think it's really important to understand why Cuba, which is an island just 160 kilometres from the coastline of Florida in the southern USA, became such a site for conflict between America on the one hand and the Soviet Union or Russia on the other. And key to this is understanding what the importance of Cuba was to the Americans. Now, it's partly because it's so close to that southern American coastline that it means that it's so key to them. It's a place that is a playground for the benefit of many wealthy American tourists who enjoyed going there for the sun, for the bars. And 
they did this at a time when the majority of the ordinary people in Cuba were quite poor. And we can see from a postcard from Cuba in the 1950s exactly the kind of thing that they were interested in. This is a postcard from Sloppy Joe's Bar in Havana, the main city, the capital city in Cuba, and it shows there a range of what seem to be American tourists having a really good time. But it's not just about entertainment. It's also the fact that many American businesses were on the island and they had a huge naval base there. The Americans also provided the Cuban ruler, General Batista, with economic and military support. In other words, what they were doing was they were propping up a dictator and his rule was pretty cruel and corrupt and very unpopular. But the reason that they were supporting Batista, even though they knew fully well that he was a dictator, the reason that they were supporting him was primarily because he was just as opposed to communism as they were. And they saw him as a very good stop against communist influence in that area. However, what changes things is the Cuban Revolution. And here enters Fidel Castro, the revolutionary leader. Now, within Cuba itself, there was plenty of opposition to the dictator Batista. And in 1959, after a three-year-long guerrilla campaign, which was pretty brutal and fought in a very bloody manner, a very passionate manner, Fidel Castro overthrew Batista. Now, Castro is a really interesting figure in history, one of those figures that has lived throughout the second half of the 20th century uh, and is a, is a really fascinating guy. Charismatic, charming, clever, but also exceedingly ruthless. And one of the things that he did immediately on seizing power, which is quite common to a lot of rulers who take over somewhere, is he quickly killed, arrested and exiled many of his political opponents. And Castro was also a very clever propagandist. He was charismatic and he had a vision for what he saw as a better Cuba, which meant in popularity terms, he managed to win over the majority of Cubans to his side. Now, the problem is the United States of America does not like what has happened. They're in fact taken by surprise. Um, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. By Castro's success, and at first, they decide to recognize him as the new leader within Cuba. However, within a very short period of time, relations between Castro's Cuba and the United States fractured and the situation grew much worse. And there were several reasons for this. First, there were thousands of Cuban exiles who lived in the United States having fled Castro's regime. They didn't want any part of it. And they themselves formed a very powerful pressure group in the United States demanding that the US take action against Castro. The other thing that's important to remember is that Castro, at the same time, took over certain American-owned businesses in Cuba, particularly agricultural businesses. He took their land and he distributed it to his supporters among Cuba's peasant farmer population. In other words, he's putting into practice the kind of thing that Karl Marx was espousing in his Communist Manifesto, which we talked about in one of our past podcasts on sharing. This, of course, went down like a lead balloon with the Americans. And as early as June 1960, the then American president, President Eisenhower, authorised the US Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, to investigate ways of overthrowing Castro. The CIA provided not only funding, but also military support to Cuban exiles. And they also investigated ways to disrupt the Cuban economy, such as acts like damaging sugar plantations. American companies, this is another thing, American companies working in Cuba refused to cooperate with any Cuban businesses which used oil or other materials which had been imported from the Soviet Union or the USSR. And the American media also broadcast a relentless stream of criticism of Castro and his regime. For example, look at, listen to this as a commentary from an American TV programme made in 1962. And this was a little snippet meant to be read out over film footage of a recent Castro rally. By October 1962, the historic friendship between Cuba and the USA was gone. Behind this change was the story of the betrayal of the Cuban people. It began with Fidel Castro triumphantly entering Havana in 1959. Castro promised democracy and freedom, and for a time it appeared to most Cubans that they were liberated. But it soon became apparent that Castro had sold out to Premier Khrushchev, of the communists, in other words, this leader of the USSR. By 1961, Castro's policy had led to a formal break between the United States and Cuba. So the media then 
were responding very negatively with all sorts of criticism against Castro, the leader, and the regime. And Castro himself responds to this hostility with a what historians have argued is a mixed approach. He assured Americans living in Cuba that they were safe, and he allowed the US to keep its naval base. He said he simply wanted to run Cuba without interference. However, and this is what changes things, by the summer of 1960, he had allied Cuba to the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, had signed a trade agreement which gave Cuba the equivalent of $100 million in economic aid. And Castro also began receiving arms from the Soviet Union. And American spies in the CIA recognised this and knew that this was happening. And this leads to something called the Bay of Pigs. And rather than a direct invasion, President Kennedy instead supplied arms, equipment and transport for around 1,400 exiles who were anti-Castro. He gave them this in order to allow them to invade Cuba and to overthrow Castro. And in April 1961, the exiles landed at the Bay of Pigs. But here is where it all goes wrong for them. They were met with over 20,000 heavily armed Cuban troops. They had tanks, they had modern weaponry, all supplied by the Soviets. And the invasion was a disaster. And what happened was most of them were captured or killed within a matter of days. And this half-hearted invasion, the impact of it is that it suggests to Cuba and the Soviet Union that despite their opposition to communism in Cuba, the United States were actually chicken. <laughs> and this brings us back to our title of this podcast. They were unwilling to get directly involved in Cuba. And the Soviet Union leader, Khrushchev, uh, was pretty scornful of uh, JFK of President Kennedy and his what he saw as a fairly sort of pathetic attempt to oust communism from Cuba. And historians also argue that the Bay of Pigs disaster further encouraged the spread of communism. On the one hand, what it did was it suggested to the Soviet Union that Kennedy was weak. And on the other, it made Castro and Khrushchev very suspicious of US policy. Now, we're here to think now about why Khrushchev put nuclear missiles on Cuba. So after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the Soviets flooded Cuba with arms. And by May 1962, the Soviet Union announced publicly for the first time that it was supplying arms to Cuba. And by July of that same year, 1962, Cuba was the best equipped army in the entirety of Latin America. It had thousands of Soviet missiles, it had 5,000 Soviet technicians to help maintain weapons, it had radar vans, tanks, jet bombers, jet fighters, in other words, all the military Soviet hardware that you could throw a stick at. And of course, what this did was to terrify the Americans. They watched what was happening with great alarm. Now, they seemed ready to tolerate conventional arms being supplied to Cuba. The problem was, what would happen when the USSR put
put nuclear missiles there. And in September, Kennedy's own intelligence department said that it didn't believe the USSR would send nuclear weapons to Cuba. But then what happened, as Sam has already told us, on the 14th of October 1962, an American spy plane flew over Cuba and it spotted not only sites nearly finished, but also others being built, many of them that were already equipped with missiles. And the problem is, for the United States, remember how close Cuba is to America. It meant that if there were nuclear missiles on Cuba, within 10 minutes, you could reach New Orleans, Cape Canaveral, where space research is going on, and within 2,000 miles, within 20 minutes, you could reach almost the entirety of the United States, not quite into Los Angeles and San Francisco and that eastern coastline, but you could certainly hit places like Salt Lake City, Denver, Washington DC, the capital of government, and also New York and places like Chicago, and also up above the Great Lakes into Canada. So this was something that was actually quite dangerous. And it was an incredibly dangerous strategy for the Russians as well. And Khrushchev was a very experienced leader, and one would think a very intelligent man. And he made no attempt at all to hide what he was doing. In fact, he even allowed missiles to travel on open deck so that they could be seen. And so historians have wondered why, in fact, this happened. Why did the Russians do this so openly? And they've come up with five different reasons. Now, firstly, is to test the United States. So in the strained atmosphere of the Cold War politics of this period, the missiles were designed to see how strong the Americans really were, whether they would back off or whether they would face up. In other words, whether they would play chicken. And the Soviet Union wanted in particular to test President Kennedy out, the new president of the United States. And secondly, they wanted to get the upper hand in the arms race. Historians have argued that perhaps Khrushchev was so concerned about the missile gap between the US and the USSR that he wanted to seize any opportunity to close it. So with missiles on Cuba, it was less likely that the Americans would ever launch a first strike against Russia. Thirdly, historians have argued that it was to defend Cuba, but the missiles were genuinely meant to defend a communist country. And fourthly, and this is this is a clever one, the argument that they make is that the missiles were there to trap the United States. So they were a trap. Khrushchev wanted the Americans to find them and be drawn into a nuclear war. Uh, he did not even try to hide them. But though quite how that would have turned out is terrifying, with, certainly with hindsight. And lastly, and this I think is probably most convincing, is that historians have argued that they wanted to bargain with the United States. In other words, Khrushchev wanted the missiles as a bargaining chip. If he had missiles on Cuba so close to America, he could agree to remove them in return for certain American concessions that would be given for the USSR. So there we are, Sam. There's the background. There's the Cuban revolution, the American response and discussion of why the Russians placed 
nuclear weapons on Cuba. All fascinating and and fascinating stuff and not too complex as well, I'd say. Very well explained, James. I enjoyed that. So this takes us up to um, the 24th of October. This is two days after Kennedy has given his public uh, announcement, which I read out to you. The blockade is imposed. You've got these Russian ships visibly carrying the missiles. They're accompanied by a Soviet submarine. No one knows what's going to happen. And then just after 10.30 in the morning, the Soviet ships either stop or turn around. And everyone is waiting to see what's going to happen next. The aerial reconnaissance being carried out by the Americans is proving that construction on the missile bases is still going ahead. By the Friday, Kennedy receives a long letter from Khrushchev and it says that the missile construction is only defensive. But he argues that if assurances were given that the USA would not participate in an attack on Cuba and the blockade was lifted, then the question of the removal or the destruction of the missile sites would be an entirely different question. Then something terrible happens. An American plane is shot down over Cuba. And this is the moment when everyone thinks that the Americans are going to respond. But Kennedy does not initially respond to this plane being shot down. He delays an attack. The next day in the evening, he still decides not to attack. And what he actually does is he accepts the terms of Khrushchev's letter. He gives those assurances that Cuba will not be attacked and the blockade will be lifted. And by Sunday, the pressure has all eliminated. It's all gone away. There's an announcement here from Kennedy explaining the end of the missile crisis. I have been informed by Chairman Khrushchev that all of the Soviet nuclear bombs in Cuba will be withdrawn within 30 days. Inasmuch as this goes a long way towards reducing the danger which faced this hemisphere four weeks ago, I have this afternoon instructed the Secretary of Defence to lift our naval quarantine. We will not abandon the political, economic and other efforts of this hemisphere to halt subversion from Cuba. It is our purpose and hope that the Cuban people shall someday be truly free. But these policies are very different from any intent to launch an invasion of Cuba. So he's lifted the quarantine. He said he will not attack Cuba. And that is enough for the Russians. So it all kind of fizzes out a bit. It's a really, really interesting moment in history. To a certain extent, both sides get something out of it. Khrushchev's proven himself as a peacemaker. Kennedy's proven himself to be tough. But I think the key takeaway thing is they both realise how terrifying it can be if there is not any quick and easy and regular communication between East and West. Cuba stays communist and remains highly armed, but no longer nuclear. And what actually can, carries on from this is a much more open communication system between Russia and America. Now, time for a bit of a quiz. When did the Cuban Missile Crisis happen? Number two, why was Cuba so important to the Americans? Number three, what was the name of the American president? Number four, who was Fidel Castro. Number five, the Americans decide to blockade Cuba, but what were their other strategic options? And finally, what was the Bay of Pigs invasion? Mm, and I think we've got a task for you all as well, you budding historians out there. We do, and you should re-listen 
to the end of the podcast. Re-listen to the whole thing. And the question we want you to answer is why do you think the Soviet Union placed nuclear missiles on Cuba? We gave you four different options. And what we want you to do is to come up with your own particular argument. Which one do you believe? Mm, I'm still, I can't decide myself, James. What fun. Um, everyone, please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. For everything else that we've got on, do please find us on social media. Get in touch. We'd love to hear from every one of you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're all doing fine. Cheers then. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.